Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Get to Know a Blazer, an in-depth yet lighthearted interview podcast that focuses on the many interesting and wonderful people that inhabit our Hood College campus. I'm your host, Tim Jacobson. For those of you who don't know me, and I'm assuming that there are many, I'm the coordinator for Hood College Broadcasting Studios and an instructor of visual media communication. Y'all know my first guest on the podcast. Um, They are one of the most recognizable faces on campus. They're always in a good mood, always have a smile on their face, and um, they're always uh, someone who's uh, willing to lend uh, an ear or a shoulder or a bottle of water or to even let you play with their, uh, their basket of rocks and shells that are in their office. Please welcome to the show. So my name is Beth O'Malley, and my title is that I am the Dean of the Chapel at Hood College. And is your full name Beth or Elizabeth? Mm-hmm, just Beth. Just Beth? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my first question, this is a really easy one. Um, how old are you and how much do you weigh? Um... I am going to just, what a, let me think of a creative response to that. I think the creative response is that I would love to get back to my original birth weight, which was just about eight and a half pounds. And what was the other question? I'm not going to ask it again oh, because you're not going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to give you creative answers. Yes, that's good. No, um, seriously, can you, like, where did you grow up? Uh-huh. Like, where, you know, where was... Like, where did it all start for Reverend So I, I grew up in Milford, Connecticut, which is um, a kind of a bedroom community of New York City. So it's about 45 miles or so north of New York City, right on Long Island Sound. And Milford is famous for being the home of, well, when I was growing up, Big Pens and Subway Sandwiches were all kind of housed or originated there. But it's also uh, used to be called the oyster capital of the United States. So oysters, pens, and, and subway sandwiches. sandwiches. Right. Cool. Um, what about siblings? A younger brother. Four years younger. Um, he is um, a professor of social work at Bridgewater State University in um, the Boston area. And he and his husband actually right now live on campus at Northeastern University because my brother-in-law is a public health doc and works with um, undergrads and grads in the public health program there. And um, what did your parents do when you were growing up? What kind of parents were they and what did they do? They were great parents and they are the reason that I do what I do. So my dad was a social worker for the public school system in um, the greater New Haven, Connecticut area. And um, he also was uh, a therapist. So he had his own kind of private um, group as well. My mom was an occupational therapist with the Veterans Administration Hospital. And in fact, my mom and dad met at the VA in Northport, um, New York on Long Island on in the psych unit. They were both um, working with psychiatric community. They weren't patients. They, they, were, they, patients. they were working. They're not Although patients. My, right. That was always my brother's <laughs> joke was my parents met on the psych ward. But they were really the reason I think I, I have been called to what I do because they were both just human service people through and through. And, um, and they were just a fabulous role model for me. 
Better sandwich, PB&J or grilled cheese? Oh, grilled cheese, hands down. Tomato and soup? Not tomato soup yet, but I, I really want like good cheese, like some really good aged sharp cheddar, smoked, lettuce and tomato, uh, maybe no bacon. But yeah, that's comfort food. I like it. Um, did you play sports? Any clubs? Anything like that? Band? Theater? I... I sang all the way through from grade school on. So I, one of the, the big communities for me was the church. And we had a very cool church growing up. And it was right across the street from my high school. And so when I was in third grade, I joined the little preparatory choir. And, um, and that was sort of my parents, I think, trying to make sure that I was creatively busy and not getting into trouble. But it started me on this lifelong love of music. So I sang all the way through high school, never in in high school, but always with the church. So I had, um, I had leads in Godspell and in Fantastics and, um, just, it just had a magnificent musical experience singing all kinds of great stuff. Um, sports, we were a sports family, but a kind of personal sport. So tennis and skiing. So my great love is kayaking. So I love river and lake kayaking. I've done a little bit of ocean kayaking, but not as much, but that's, if you could give me anything that would give me like, oh, just make me happy and healthy to spend a whole weekend kayaking would be it. Yeah, we share that one. I do a lot of that myself. Um, speaking of music, um, favorite concert that you ever went to? Um, so my husband and I really like the Gypsy Kings and they came to Meriwether. This is a bazillion years ago, but it was just so much fun to have that that kind of music and uh, and the energy of going there. Did you have seats or were you on the lawn? No, we were seats. Seats? Yeah. Seminary school, how did that come? How did you make that decision? How, was that something early on yes. that you knew you wanted to pursue? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to sound like this um, sort of cheesy stereotype of saying I've kind of always known that. Because the church was such a central part of um, my growing up. And, and I want to do a little backtrack because my dad was raised Catholic and my mom was raised Unitarian, which is kind of a secular humanist group. And so it wasn't until like in my late 20s, early 30s that I realized, huh, you grew up in an interfaith home because for all intents and purposes, my mom's tradition wasn't really Christian. But when... I was coming along, they decided they were going to compromise. And so they found the United Church of Christ, which is a big white congregational church in Milford, Connecticut. And it it was a big congregation, fabulous music program, really good education program, huge youth group. So I had there were like 80 kids in our youth group um, and everybody wanted to be there. And so I don't ever remember a time that I didn't want to do that work. And so I watched my parents, my dad worked with people who had problems mostly you know people don't go to therapists they don't come to their school social worker because things are terrific they come right. in times of crisis um and i watched my mom do her work and it was all rehab work because she was working with veterans um and then i looked at the church and realized those pastors were with people through like every experience of life from babies being born all the way through marriages burying you know we call that the hatch, match, and dispatch business. But um, but I also realized that pastors were often the first line of, of help when people would go, you know, so they weren't sure that they wanted to go to a therapist or they were not 
comfortable going to the police, but they would come to a pastor. And so it felt to me like a really holistic kind of profession and way to help people. And so um, when I graduated from college, uh, Hiram College in Northeastern Ohio, school very similar to Hood, but out in the sticks, I would have loved a city like Frederick. Um, we had a lot of cornfields. Um, and so when I was getting ready to graduate, the place that I thought was, well, we had all these great interns from Yale Divinity School. And so I'm sure I can't get in, but I'm going to go ahead and apply. So I applied to a whole slew of schools, got into Yale. And um, and it was in my backyard, so it didn't have quite the mystique that maybe it had for other people. But uh, needless to say, it was a, a great education. And in, in great part because people from all over the world. And so it wasn't just Christians who went there. There were Jews and Buddhists and, and secular humanists and folks who were Muslim. And so... Um, you know, when I was 18, no, 22, I got this great taste of sort of like, there's a big world out there mm -hmm. and got to listen to people who um, would share their backgrounds. And so that developed a real deep appreciation along with what my parents had given me for, you know, everybody has a story. And so what I say to students here at Hood is when somebody kind of has their world rocked by um, listening to somebody else and um, and their faith journey. And, you know, why do I need to um, know what Eid is for Muslims? Why do I need to know what Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur is for the Jewish community? I, I say to people, can you imagine somebody else holds their beliefs as deeply as you hold yours? Yeah. And so that, I hope, always builds a bridge of appreciation for folks. I agree. Yeah. A lot of gods out there, right? A lot, of, a lot of ways to the holy. Yeah. You know, I always try to give people different language. Um, a lot of ways to the holy. I like that. And, and you know, that's it's because we're working on this college campus where we're introducing people to new ideas. My hope always is that I can give people um, a, a different lens to look through to say, how do I honor what my values are and also what somebody else's values are? And that's particularly important right now as we are living in an age with social media where we're in this little bubble and it's usually an echo chamber. We all suffer from that to some degree. Yeah. Um, and so if I can create a climate of appreciation, um, that that makes me feel like I've done my work. Yeah. Um, when you, did you graduate from seminary school mm -hmm. in the same way? Did you come straight to Hood or were you, mm -hmm. no. where were you before Hood? So, so seminary, uh, at Master of Divinity is a three-year program. Okay. And, um, I graduated and I was ordained in the United Church of Christ in Connecticut. And I had my first church on the far east side of Cleveland, which was a very cool area to be because um, we were smack dab between Cleveland, which is a, a big industrial city, mm -hmm. and um, a, a big Amish community on the far east side of I didn't that think area about that. Yeah. in Geauga County, Ohio. And so I got this um, really, again, terrifically rich experience with so many different kinds of people. And that church um, was interesting. It was a small UCC church, but the way it was introduced to me by the folks who were the heads of the denomination was there are a bunch of old ladies who have criminal records because they sat in with Cesar Chavez who was the, the great, uh, you know, farm worker, mm -hmm. yeah. advocate, and social justice champion. Um, and it was a very progressive group of people. And that was, for me, really good. But um, supportive, loving, and a great place to kind of get my my feet wet being a pastor. Um, how did you come to Hood? How did that 
come about? So I had been a pastor at the Columbia United Christian Church in Columbia, Maryland, and Jim Rouse, who people know as a, a big developer, business developer, um, you know, created Baltimore's um, Inner Harbor and the Boston um, waterfront and uh, grandfather of Edward Norris, who's the, uh, the great actor. And um, so I was called after that church in Ohio to a church in Columbia, and it was um, at an interfaith center. And uh, it was a federated church, which means that it wasn't just one denomination. So it was United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and Church of the Brethren. And I was with that church for, for 12 years. And, um, and actually really thought we were, my husband and I were moving. He had been in biotech for a long time as a researcher. And um, so we thought we were moving to California or someplace else. And I thought, I have not interviewed anywhere in a long time. And um, the head of the UCC for our area showed me the job opening. And I said, this is a really good opportunity for me to um, put my resume back together, go have an interview, no stakes, nothing, nothing wasted. Um, I'm not going to get an interview because I don't have any of the skills. So got an interview, thought, okay, well, that's all right. We'll just go through it. And I, you know, really never thought I was going to get this job. So I had tremendous freedom to be be myself. Uh, And then Dean White called and offered me the job. And I thought, now what do we do? And so we stayed because we thought it would be, you know, three or four years. And this is the start of my 14th year. So 14 years you've been here. I'm I'm starting 14, finished 13. Yeah. So came in 2008. Um, what are some of the, like the biggest changes you've seen on campus in that 14 years? Oh, that's, I mean, whether it's, whether it's students or whether it's, you know, the vibe on campus, you know, um, so what I think one of the things that I see that I consider to be a real positive is when I was here, lots and lots of people, the first way that they described hood was as a former women's college. And you would see that on our website and you'd hear that in, um, you know, whatever the, the script was that people were reading off of. Hood was known as a former women's college. And, um, and I think that it had a, a different vibe, maybe that was, you know, more traditional and had vestiges of, you know, so this may sound a little, um, what's the word I want? Unfiltered. It was more of a, an elite college for more affluent women from around the country, um, which was wonderful, wonderful education. And I, I think as I did some of the history of Hood, realized that the, the men who started this college were, were trailblazers, no pun intended, for our mascot. But that whole idea of educating women in something more than just um, the fine arts of you know music and languages and handcraft. Yeah. Homeac secretarial skills yeah that they were doing chemistry and and philosophy and you know there was a tremendous appreciation for um for the minds of women being as good if not better than men um and so what i've seen is this wonderful evolution of our campus opening itself to a, a more diverse broad group of students Students of color, students from many different kinds of backgrounds, some who haven't had all the advantages of some of the students yeah. who've come in generations past, but with all of the uh, the native ability of um, of anybody else. And so I think that that increase in diverse student body and 
I hope diverse faculty and staff as well is is a great asset to the college and makes for a much richer experience for everybody. Yeah, and I agree. A lot more fun. Yeah, I like you know having classes with people of completely diverse backgrounds right. because I think we learn from each other. And it's bumpy because you know sometimes those of us who are faculty and staff and professors get um, get things presented to us that aren't the norm. So when I when I started, I had a, one of my first work-study students um, lost a parent to gun violence. And, um, and, you know, kind of checking around Dean White, who was our dean of students at that point, you know, was tremendously supportive. And another staff member and I um, got permission to drive this student home and, you know, kind of be privy to that family in, yeah. in the, one of the toughest moments. But just to see, too, that that... That was a family that didn't have some of the resources that a lot of us took for granted. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I love most about my job is that I get I get to be with people at really important moments in their lives and often yeah. really tough ones. And that's a that's a privilege and, and an honor. Yeah, I think that's something that we all kind of forget is that, you know, everybody's coming in here with different issues, Right. you know different things that are happening that we don't right. necessarily know about. Perfect segue. So I have yeah. a little sign above my desk that says, be kinder than necessary because everybody you meet is fighting some kind of battle. And I have that up there as a reminder to me and to everybody who comes in there because so many students will come in and say, I'm the only person who's going through this. I'm the only person who doesn't know what I want to do. I'm the only person who's struggling with Bad roommate, bad family situation, anxiety, whatever it is. And no, it's a big, big club. Um, Paris or Rome? Oh. Um, I want to I want to go up on the Eiffel Tower. I want that view. Can I say both? Yeah. Does it have to be either or? No. Um, so you're married. Mm-hmm. How did you and your husband meet? Went to college together. Did you? Mm-hmm. I met my husband um, first because I was escaping an upper class man who was a little too interested in me and I jumped into a van and it turned out that my husband Randy was driving that van to take people back and forth to this sort of um, welcome to college event. But we never dated until uh, he was done with vet school and the Peace Corps and I was done with seminary and I'd moved to Ohio. So you were escaping a stalker and you did it by jumping into a van. I did. It worked out well. <laughs> I, I can um, do. And we've been married. It'll be 31 years in December. Congratulations. And three kids. All and you have three kids. All of whom are How here. old are they? Where are um, they doing? Zach is a senior here, and he is 24, poli-sci major. Olivia is going to be a social work major, going to be 20 in a few weeks. And Maura just started, first-year student. So they're all here. Mm-hmm. Is that weird having your kids on campus? Um, It means I have to behave. <laughs> I, I'm really not good at behaving. Sure if I agree with that, but we don't have to. Um, pets? Do you, like Do you have pets? Yes. We have uh, two dogs, both pandemic adoptees. One that uh, we adopted um, from Puerto Rico when Dr. Torres Crespo and I led a, an alternative break to Puerto Rico um, a couple of, of springs back, and we worked as part of our service at a dog shelter. And I fell in love with this dog, who, and she's a a border collie um, husky mix. So really beautiful. And then my son um, inherited, adopted a little Shiba Inu 
It's a little Japanese hunting dog. So we have Zora, who's from Puerto Rico, and Zubert, who's from all over the place. I like it. Um, what's with the obsession with rocks? Oh, Where did that come from? Why did you have to out me about that? So I have, I think it's, um, I think it's my New England hardwiring. So my mom loved to bring home pine cones and rocks, and somehow I inherited that. So you have been wonderful and brought me a rock from Dolly Sod, which yep. you'll have to tell people what that is. But I have rocks from right all over the place. I just think they're beautiful. And I love I love geology. So I am not a scientist. I am a horrible uh, math science person in terms of testing, but I love, love, love nature. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same, and I have the same. Like, there's little rocks all over our yeah. house that I could tell you, like where they where came they from. Came and I'm like, why do I have these? They're sitting there doing nothing. Well, but so but they give you great joy, rock. right? And yeah. you enjoy looking at them. So I have a basket in my office that's full of rocks from the beaches of Maine and Massachusetts and Rhode Island, where we go all the time to visit our family, and from and shells from all over the world that people have given me. And I always put those out because sometimes when students come to talk. And faculty and staff, it can be kind of hard to start a conversation. And so if you have something in your hands that you're playing with that you kind of distract yourself with, that's a nice icebreaker. I agree. You're probably one of the most recognizable faces on campus. Is that, I mean, was that something that you're comfortable with? Or is that sort of a scary thing to know that, you know, you're probably one of the top five recognizable people on campus? Just because you're out there all the time, yeah. you're giving, you know, benediction, you're giving the welcome, uh, you're walking around, you're at a lot of events. Yeah. So it's a double edged sword. And um, it's it's an honor to have that position. So all of those things that I get to do to be the sort of the public face of spirituality and support for values at Hood is is really an honor. And um and to be sort of, you know, this is going to sound maybe a little inflated, but, you know, kind of to be the comforter on campus, um, that's what good pastoral care is. And and so on one hand, I want to be recognizable because it's it means people have access to me. But on the other hand, um, I want to be like glue. I want to be this this thing, this this presence on campus that brings people together but doesn't call attention to itself. And so I have a big personality, but it, it I'm hoping what it is is a, a welcome to people um, and not for me, but in service to the college and other people. And, yeah. and, and this sense of comfort. The most important thing for me is for everybody at Hood to feel like they've got a safe place to be brave to face whatever obstacle that they have at the moment. And to have a place to celebrate. Yeah. So I one of my kind of uh, attributes that I always admire about you is you're always in a good mood. You always have a smile <laughs> on your face. Um, you're Do you always ask my willing. Children about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Since they're on campus. Yeah. Um, but does that something that comes naturally to you? Is it just that's who you are, or like how do you do that going through the day, and then? How, what kind of advice can you give to other people to like maintain that positive attitude, that outward positive attitude, even though it might be, you know, be a train wreck um, somewhere else? I, I think that the positivity in general is my hardwiring. I have 
struggled over the years sometimes with depression and anxiety. So I have a lot of deep empathy for people who are experiencing that. Um, but I, the positivity is sort of a muscle that I've tried to develop because I really have found over years of working with people and just living that negativity um, has a way of breeding the worst stuff, um, whether it's internally or externally. And so I just don't find it to be very helpful. And I am kind of a utilitarian at base. I look for what works. And um, and what works, I think, is helping people to um, build on the strengths in their life. Everybody has them. They tend to be quieter. Pain and uh, discomfort tend to scream at us and suck up a lot of oxygen. And so it's not kind of a Pollyanna, you know, positivity that's really fluffy and empty. I really work hard for myself and for other people to say, what are the strengths that you have that we can help build on? And then, and then I think that just kind of, that is contagious. You know, when people leave with a sense of strength, that affects their grades, it affects their relationships. Um, it affects their mental and physical health. So chapel is one of those places, you know, for people of all kinds of backgrounds, I want that to be a place that you get to explore your values, feel safe. Meditation is another place. So, you know, that that seems like it's a secular thing, but for many people, you know, one of the practices that we do is loving kindness, yeah. to extend right. that to ourselves. And then you begin to kind of have that ripple effect out to other people. So I have been accused over the years of being a goody goody. In fact, I just thought about this. Here's a little tidbit. I lost homecoming queen in college by one vote. That's okay. To That's affected you to this day. I, well, I just remember it's been years since I thought about that. I know. So, right. I, I still feel that one. But my one of my professors who was a poli sci professor laughed at me and said, you were beat out by one of your own kind. She was a bigger goody goody than you are. And I said, I am not a goody goody. And he said, well, I think people think you are because of the positivity and the chaplain. But I think there are people who would tell you that I have um, a pretty unfiltered sense of humor. Um, and there are students who have been known to hear me use words that perhaps could yeah. be equated with some language that is not becoming of a chaplain. But um, I am not a goody-goody. I, I just, I really enjoy life and I want other people to do the same. Yeah, I think it's really hard to fake empathy. Yeah. You know, you can do it a little bit, but for the long haul, you can't fake it. And, and I think people can recognize that when it's yeah when you're faking it, and it's very obvious that you don't. Fake it. Well, and I learn so much, you know, from 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 people who just come in and are willing to share what's going on. And lots of times, people are like, "What do you do?" <laughs> you know. So I have that public face of being the pe the person who prays or the pre person who leads meditation or whatever. Most of the time, people are with me when something's not good. So I hear a lot about people's losses, when people have lost somebody to an illness um, or gun violence or um, somebody's coming out and, and they're frightened by that. Um, somebody's experienced sexual assault or harassment. Um, and so I've learned so much from the people who come to me who you know, allow me just to sort of walk with them on that journey. It's, it's not rocket science or magic. You know, I'm not a counselor. So I am yeah. the biggest advocate for people to go over to Toll House um, and see the really skilled folks who are over there. But 
um, I can sometimes be an entry point for people to feel comfortable to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, I get to say to folks, you, I'm sorry that you're in a big club. You are not the only person who's lost somebody right now to COVID or suicide or something else. Um, yeah. Sometimes the easiest thing you can do is just sit and listen. Right. I think that people need that. And it's one of the toughest things for lots of us. You know, we most of us are hardwired to fix. And and on a college campus, we put a lot of value on answers and being experts. And and to be an expert human being sometimes to just allow imperfection. And as one of our wonderful graduates said, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You mentioned it before. You do a lot of meditation. Mm-hmm. Meditate on your own. You probably do a lot of classes. Um do you often fall asleep when you meditate? No, I don't. Because I always do. Do you? I don't know how to not do that. I either fall asleep or I can't shut my mind off. Yeah, that last one is the big one. So you know? not the fall asleep part is maybe you need to sleep. You know, maybe your body is telling you, hello, Tim, good time for a nap. Most of us don't get enough sleep. And I think that's an undervalued resource. We, we really, uh, what's the word I want? We give great credit to people who pull all-nighters and are working, you know, ridiculous yeah. hours. And we somehow lift that up as a great value. And and it's not because none of us are our best when we're exhausted. Um, and that's the reason we make a lot of mistakes, whether it's on tests or in relationships, is we're not rested. But turning your brain off, that's so hard. So, so hard. And it's like building a muscle, you know. So the practices that we do in meditation aren't quick fixes and they're not um, easy all the time, but you know, it's to kind of distract our brain and to say, wait, don't think, breathe. Yeah. That's my big thing. I have a hard time turning my brain off. We do, I the, just can't do it. the five, four, three, two, one. So it's a kind of a grounding exercise. A student brought it to me years ago and it's called the anxiety antidote. And you do five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, Two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. And what it does is it pulls you right into the present immediately. And so I'll say to students, when your brain starts racing, give yourself that five, four, three, two, one exercise. And what it does is your brain can't do anything but, oh, what are the five things I'm seeing? I'm seeing a door and a hook and a handle and you have a green shirt on and there's a whole bunch of AV equipment here. And and you pull yourself into that. And that's a good start. It's not the ending place, but stops the racing mind, at least for a second. Good advice. Um, thank you You're so welcome. much, Reverend Bethel Manley, for being the first of what I hope are many guests on Get to Know Blazer. I have one last question for you. Who do you think should be the next guest there on the show? There are so many good people on campus. So I want you to interview Tammy Simpson because she is our new VP for community and inclusivity. Tammy has a really interesting background. She is here to be an advocate for students um, and her, she's a brand new job. So I, I want to hear from her and what she's doing, but I really want our students to get to know her. So would you interview her? I will. Okay. If she, if she, yeah. If she says if yes. If she says yes, the Tammy, next guest will it. be Tammy Simpson. Very good. I will be giving her a call. Good. Tim, thanks. This has been a Thank you. I would very much like to thank Reverend Beth O'Malley for being my first 
guest on the show. She made this first interview uh, very easy for me, and I think it's going to set a great tone for the rest uh, of the podcasts. I'll see you guys next time. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to tune in. Uh, Until then, be kind to one another and be kind to yourself. The lead-in and lead-out music for our show, titled Grandpa, is written and played by none other than John Medallis. Get to Know a Blazer is a production of Hood College Broadcasting Studios.